The following message is brought to you by Capital City Baptist Church of Port Mosby. We exist to bring glory to God by knowing Christ and making Him known. If you would like to visit our church, we hold multiple services on Sunday mornings starting at 9 a.m. We are located between Motokare Wharf and Edai Town. Pickups are available 7091000. If you have your Bibles there, turn to Romans chapter 10. <clears throat> Romans chapter 10. We're going to read verses 1 all the way down to verse 13 together this morning. Romans chapter 10, verse 1 down to verse 13. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? This is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. The same Lord over all is rich unto them that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thank God for his word. If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in Romans chapter 10 together. And if you've got a piece of paper, you can drop it into Colossians chapter 2. Romans chapter 10 and also Colossians chapter 2. It's sometimes good for us to be reminded that all of Scripture works together. The entire Bible is telling one giant story, and that story is redemption. That's found in the gospel. Sometimes it's easy for us to overlook, I'll use the example of overlook the forest because we spend so much time looking at the trees. And so if I can just take a moment and let us see as we come into Romans 10 how all of Scripture works together. I think the best way to do that is to take a moment and step back, look at it from the big picture, and think from the beginning. It was the sixth day. 
God was about to create His crowning moment of all of creation. Everything else was prepared. The universe, as it were, had only been in existence for six days. Light, six days old. That's hard for us to fathom. The moon, the stars, the trees, the sea, the fish, the birds, the mammals. And then on the sixth day, God took dust from the ground, formed it into His own image, and breathed into man the breath of life. And God had a reason for doing that. He said, let us make man in our own image. God's creating man. This was in His own image. I think that if we were to say, what is the best way for us to think of how man is to be created in God's image, that is ultimately God calling us to be godly. God-like. And I ask you to pause this morning and wonder back through your week, have you been godly this week? He said, let us create man in our own image. And He called upon us. He did not make dogs in His own image. He did not make sunsets in His own image. He made man. And He has called upon us to reflect the character of God. So, dads, in caring for your family, you are reflecting the character of God. As you correct your children, as God so lovingly corrects His children, as you correct your children, you are reflecting the image of God in love, not allowing your children to just stray and do whatever they want to in their sinful ways. Reflect the character of God in His image. And God gave Adam a purpose, and that was to glorify God. And God gave Adam a job. Please don't think that work is a result of the fall. Sweat is the result of the fall. Work was there before man ever sinned. Work is a good thing. God created you to work. It's a good thing. There's a result of work, by the way. The gift that comes on the back of work is called rest. When you work, you get rest. And if you don't understand that, ask a lazy person. And ask them how tired they are. They never do any work, and they're always tired. And they never find rest. God gave work to man. And God gave man one commandment. Adam, you have one commandment. You can eat of all the trees in the garden, but that one, don't eat it. One very simple command. Man was at unity with God. There was nothing between him and God. Perfect, holy, righteous. Fellowship with God. God would come and walk in the garden with man. Can you imagine how glorious that must have been? And yet, man broke that one command. And wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so that death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So then every single one of us is a sinner as a result of Adam's sin in the garden. And that has passed down upon every single one of us. And with sin, I want you to grasp this this morning, with sin comes shame. Would you think about that for just a moment? 
When you do something wrong and someone finds out about it and asks you, did you do this? Do you know what your natural first inclination is? To lie. You know why? Because you're ashamed of it. Adam, in the garden, he ate of the fruit and immediately his eyes were opened and he realized he was naked and shame entered into the universe for the very first time. And he went and grabbed some fig leaves and sewed them up and he hid behind a tree where just moments before he had seen his wife and said, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Wherefore, a man will leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife. And now in this moment of shame, he's grabbing leaves and hiding behind a tree and chucking her under the bus and accusing God. The only reason that I made this sin is because you gave me her. Oh, sin will take you much further than you ever wanted to go. And sin will cost you much more than you ever wanted to pay. And here in the garden, where everything should have been perfect, things were destroyed because man rebelled against God. And sin brings shame. Adam knew that he was unrighteous. He was ashamed of it. He went and hid. And we also, just like our father Adam, are not righteous. But I think that at our core, every one of us knows this. And we want to be righteous. I don't want to be separated from God. I don't want to hide in shame for the rest of my life. I want to be right with God. I don't want to be abiding under His wrath. I want to be righteous. And in the garden, the story of redemption begins as God steps into that mess. Slays, it seems, a lamb, just says an animal slays a lamb, provides the clothing that's needed, and covers the sin. And for the next 4,000 years throughout the Old Testament, that story is repeated again and again and again. As man sins, breaks the relationship with God, slays a lamb, covers his sin, covers his shame, and the blood covers his sin. And that happens all the way until the cross where John the Baptist described Jesus in the book of John, chapter 1. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, where Jesus stepped into our mess. And God had promised that all the way back in the garden. I will send one. That's His only begotten Son. Because He loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son so that He would take our sin upon Himself on the cross. You see, all of Scripture is the story of redemption. As we come back to Him because He has sent Jesus. Now we closed out Romans chapter 9 and verse 33 with this thought. God puts Jesus in front of every single one of us as a stone for the nation of Israel. That stone was there a stumbling stone. Because they sought righteousness. They wanted to be right with God. They sought it by their own good deeds. He called it following the law. They followed the Or they sought after righteousness by going after the righteousness of the law. And so Jesus is placed right in front of them. You want to see how good you are? Measure up against the most holy, perfect Son of God and try and see how you do there. And they stumbled across that. And yet, for those who do not stumble across Jesus, instead place their trust in Jesus, He is found to them to be the chief cornerstone. 
He is the stone that is placed in front of us, not the one upon whom I will dash my foot, but instead He is the one upon whom I will build my foundation. And I will find my hope in God because of Jesus. And He will become the chief cornerstone of my life and I will build upon Him. And that's how we found the end of Romans chapter 10 and now we come into chapter, uh, end of chapter 9 and now we come into the beginning of chapter 10. Today we'll walk through the first 13 verses and I hope that as a result of our time together that if you have not already chosen Him to be the cornerstone of your life, I pray this morning that you would not stumble upon Him but instead that you would place your trust in Him. He might make you righteous. So let's read verses 1 to 3 this morning. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. Brethren, and he's going to stay in this line of thinking. What about Israel? And so he's going to stay in this line of thinking, but he's not going to stay there long. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. In other words, short way of saying this is they are not saved. Look at the words that are used. I'm praying, he says in verse 1, my heart's desire and my prayer is that they might be saved. I don't want to leave them lost. In verse 2, I bear them record, I'm giving testimony to the fact that they have a zeal of God. They want to follow after God, but that following and that zeal is not according to knowledge. They do not understand what they're doing. They're ignorant. See it in verse 3. They're ignorant. They don't know. They're ignorant of God's righteousness. And they're going about to establish their own righteousness. And they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Can I just bring that home for us today? I'm going to give you three points as we walk through our text today. The first one comes, I just bring this right out of verses 1 to 3. Here's your first one. Your attempts at your own righteousness will keep you from being saved. I want you to let that sink in, because that's exactly what he just said in verses 1 to 3. Your attempts at being righteous on your own will keep you from being saved. Now, there's two ways to approach God. There's two ways to approach God. We saw it in the end of chapter 9, the people of Israel coming and doing their best to establish their own righteousness. It's as if they walk up before God and they say, hey God, have a look here at how good I am. As if they are proud of their goodness. If we were to bring that to us today, it doesn't matter if you are attending church on a regular basis, or you get baptized, or you give tithes, or you even bring your friends, or you pray the rosary, or you pray the sinner's prayer, it does not matter what good, righteous deeds you bring before God. For when you bring your own attempts before God, you are negating His righteousness. Hear it again in verse 3. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, they have a zeal, they want it, but they're going about trying to establish their own, going about to establish their own righteousness. Look, God, how righteous I am. They have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Do you realize that independent Baptist church attending good Christian people can do this very thing? 
You don't have to be a law-following Judaizer to fall into verse 3. You can be an independent Baptist who grew up in a Baptist church and did everything that you were supposed to do, and then you come before God proud of your own righteousness, and God in His nostrils does not find that as a sweet-smelling offer. It's arrogant. There's a very opposite way to approach God. And that is for you to come broken in need of His goodness. For I will hide behind the cross of Christ alone, for it is Christ alone who took my sin. And it is in Christ alone that I will find my righteousness. So instead of me coming to God to show Him all the good things that I've done, so that He will look at me and say, yes, that's perfect. No, instead, I will come to Him broken and I will say, I need you and I need Jesus' righteousness so that 2 Corinthians 5.21 might be fulfilled in my life. He has made Him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Not me bringing my righteousness. No, I'm pleading His. I need Him. These people of Israel, they had a zeal of God, but it was not according to knowledge. And you have your own righteousness. But God sees your righteousness. And I'll use some words from Isaiah 64. And we'll read the verse in just a moment. Your righteousness in God's eyes is nothing but filthy rags. Here's the verse. This is Isaiah 64 and verse 6. We are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We do fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. You try to root yourself into your righteousness. He says, no, your righteousness is as a filthy rag. Your iniquities are carrying you away like the wind. You are not rooting yourself into firm ground when you try to root yourself into your own righteousness. And sadly, the harder you try, the worse it gets. Let me show it to you in verse 5. For Moses describeth the law, or the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth these things shall live by them. I'll say it again. The harder you try, the worse it gets. Let me ask a question. How many people, when I say the words hamster wheel, know what I'm talking about. If I say hamster wheel, let me see, raise them real high. If you know what I'm talking about, a hamster wheel. All right, so for the majority of us, we don't know what a hamster wheel is. How many of you know what a hamster is? How many of you know what a rat is? There we go, that's a lot more of you. Okay, so you can just imagine somebody has a pet hamster. Some people keep hamsters, some keep gerbils, some keep mice, some keep rats, some keep guinea pigs. I don't know why, but they do. As pets... Smart people keep dogs, other people keep rats. I don't know why. In a little cage, in this little hamster, I never had one, so I can't really speak from experience, but I've seen, I had friends that had them when I was a kid. They say that the hamster is very personable, and you can pick it up, and you can play with it. My wife said that when she, had, when she was a, a child, she had one. She picked it up and put it up to her face, and she wanted to kiss it, and it bit her on the nose. <laughs> I don't understand how you can ever come to like a rodent. But anyway, in this cage, those who have pet rodents have a hamster wheel inside of the cage. And it gives a place for that little hamster to exercise. 
And you can just imagine as the little rat climbs onto the little wheel and he begins to run. And that wheel turns. And the faster he runs, the faster the wheel turns. And I can just imagine in his mind as he's on that wheel and he's just going as fast as he can. How many of you have seen what I'm talking You know what I'm talking about now? How many of you see it? Yes, yes, yes. All right. So you can just imagine as he's on his little wheel, he's just going as fast as he can. He's like, this is awesome. And in his mind, he's running a marathon. I'm just having the best time of my life. Everybody's cheering him on. And when he gets done, he steps off the hamster wheel. And guess how far he's gone? Nowhere! By the way, some people exercise that way. They get on a treadmill. I won't preach long there, okay? But can you imagine as the little hamster gets on his hamster wheel and he goes, and the faster he goes, the faster he has to keep going. Have that in mind. Read verse 5 again. Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law that the man which does those things shall live by them. So the more you're doing your best to keep doing the law, the more you have to keep doing the law. And you get all tied up inside of this law. For the moment you stop, you're right back at square one. All of the things that you've done to excel and get forward fall right back. the book of Galatians, Paul made a statement like this. In order to fulfill the law, you have to continue to fulfill all of the law. You know what the word continue means, right? It means keep on doing it. And you have to continue to continue to continue to do all of the all of the all of the law. There's no end to it. Aren't you glad, brother and sister, you put your trust in Christ. Aren't you glad that Christ is the end of the law to them that believe? Jesus finished it all. Oh, and by the way, that's what he just said in verse 4. Look at verse 4. This is Romans 10 and verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. So instead of me bringing my righteousness and all of my good things, and I know we're not doing the ceremonial law nowadays, keep the Sabbath... All of those things. I know we're not doing those nowadays, but boy, we are really good at putting our own version in. And we're not having to do all those because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. So I put my trust in Christ. He finished it. There's no more hamster wheel for me. And I don't bring my righteousness before God. For if I bring my righteousness, my attempts at righteousness will keep me from being saved. And God knew this. So hold your place here in Romans chapter 10 and look over at Colossians 2. I want you to see this in Colossians 2. God knew it and He did not want to leave you that way. He knew that sin would bring shame in your life. He knew that you needed to be made righteous. He knew it and He did not leave you unrighteous. He did not leave you without a way to be made right with Him. Look at Colossians chapter 2. I will focus in just a moment on verses 13 and 14. But can I pause in verse 9? Because I think you need to see the gravity of this moment. Here's Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. For in Him, that's in Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So God took the entire Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, bodily form, placed that into Jesus. Now can you imagine Jesus... Walking the earth, that's God in the flesh. 
These are very important things for us to keep in mind. Jesus was not just a man that went to the cross. Not just a perfect teacher that went to the cross. He was God who went on our behalf. And now look at verse 10. I think that some of you Christians need to grasp this. And you are complete in Him. To be in Christ will change your life. You are complete in Him. So that means you got your righteousness from Him. And you don't have to find your righteousness in this one and that one and this one and that one. You don't take the hamster wheel and add it on to Jesus. You're complete in Him. Now come down to verse number 13. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath He quickened together with Him. So God made you alive. If you put your trust in Jesus, God made you alive. You were dead in your sins. He made you alive. Having, how did this happen? Having forgiven you all your trespasses. You're complete in Him. He's forgiven you of your sins. He's made you righteous. And how did He do it? In verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So here's what God did. He sent Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. He took Jesus to the cross. It was no mistake that He went to the cross. Jesus to the cross. And then He took the handwriting of ordinances. That was the record of your debt of sin. And He took it and He placed it on the cross and allowed these things to sink in. The picture that's being painted here, my sin was placed upon Jesus at the cross. And the last words of verse 13, nailing them to the cross. So my record of sin went with Jesus to use 2 Corinthians 5.21's words. God made Jesus to be sin for me. So Jesus goes to the cross on my behalf and all of my sin is placed on Him. And your sin was placed upon Him. And all the record of your sin was placed upon Him. And your debt of sin was placed upon Him. Nailed to the cross. And He took it. And He died on your behalf and on mine. He suffered for our iniquities. And then in verse 14... Or verse 15, he turns this one around and he says, he spoiled principalities and powers. That was Satan's realm. He spoiled them. He made an open shame of them. And he triumphed over them. It was as if while he was on the cross, he looked at Satan. And he didn't do this, but it's the same idea. He made an open shame of them. He sent a great big fat raspberry their way. <laughs> Satan, you don't get this one. I'm taking the debt penalty for all who will believe in me. And He took our sin upon the cross, brothers and sisters. He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. You believe in Jesus? He took your sin debt. And that's the end of the law. Done. Now come back to Romans chapter 5. Oh, sorry, Romans chapter 10 and verse number 6. Look at Romans chapter 10 and verse number 6. There's no, no, no more need to try. No need to get in my own way. I think that's the best way to say it. No need to get in your own way for salvation. 
There's a better way, and that's through Jesus. So that brings us to our second point. If you're writing these down, the second one would be this. The righteousness, righteousness that you need for salvation comes by faith. The righteousness that you need for salvation comes by faith. Let me read verse number 6 and 7. The righteousness which is a faith speaks on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend unto heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ again from the dead. There's a contrast happening here between verse 5 and verse 6. Verse 5, notice the words, Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law. Then in verse 6, but the righteousness which is of faith has something to say. So we're seeing a contrast here. The righteousness of the law says you'll never get out of this. Keep on trying for the rest of your life. You'll never get there. The righteousness which is of faith says, hang on, there's something you need to know. Now before he gets to this is what you need to know, and what he finally gets to what you need to know is not until verse 9. He's going to give us two negatives before he gets there. So look at it in verse 6 and verse 7. The righteousness which is of faith speaks on this wise, and you would expect, he's getting ready to say, this is what it says. But instead he goes, this is what it doesn't say. Say not. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? So in other words, don't say to yourself, verse 6, don't say to yourself, I need to work my way up to heaven. I need to do all these righteous good deeds. And then he gives a parenthesis, that is to say, to bring Christ down from above. In other words, if I say, I need to work my way up to heaven, you know what I'm essentially saying? Jesus, you are of no effect and I don't need you. I'm going to pull him down, as it were, from heaven. Don't go there. And then verse 7 he says, and don't say, I need to ascend, descend down into hell. I don't need to go down into the deep. In other words, another way to say that is, you don't need to atone for your own sins. There would be some who say, I have done wicked, sinful things in my life and I need to pay for those before I can ever be right with God. And God goes, no, wait. Jesus went to the cross and took all your sin. Why in the world would you even try to carry one little sin? For the moment that you try to carry one little sin, you degrade the magnificent work of Christ on the cross. So don't think, I need to climb my way into heaven, work my way into heaven, and don't think, I need to atone for my sin to go down. For when the one, I'm tearing Christ down, and from the other, I'm somehow trying to raise Christ up on my own. It was God who raised him from the dead, not me. I don't go down there and take his place. So there's two, don't say those things. Then verse 8, but what saith it? The word is nigh thee. It's even in thy mouth, in thy heart. But it's the word of faith which we preach. It's so very close, friend. You know what the word of the righteousness that comes from the law says? You'll never make it. Keep on trying. Do your best. And when you get to the end, maybe. That's what righteousness which comes from the law says. But you know what the righteousness which comes from faith says? Oh, it's nigh thee. It's even in your mouth and it's in your heart. It's the word of faith. Just hang on. You don't have to do all that. It's there. So what is it? Here it is in verse 9. That 
If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So the righteousness of God is very near you. You do not have to work to obtain it. Oh, He has already provided it. It's already been all paid for by Jesus on the cross. And then He confirmed it with raising Him from the dead. He didn't even leave Him there. didn't even leave us a question in our mind. This whole book is all about redemption. He has done this for us. And now, what do we have left to do? Trust Him. Trust Him. we got a whole chapter, Romans chapter 9, a whole chapter that said you can trust the promises of God. What about Israel? I thought God turned His back on Israel. Oh no, God didn't turn His back on Israel. God always keeps His promises. we got a whole chapter of you can trust God. And now He comes into chapter 10 and He says, hey, quit trying on your own. Just trust Me. I've done it all for you. It's nigh thee. It's even in your mouth. It's in your heart. That if with your mouth you'll confess the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Oh, this is a glorious promise. This is an addition. Another promise. So let me talk about believe. Let me talk about confess. Believe. Notice the words in verse 9. Thou shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead. Believe in your heart. It's deep down in the core of my being. I'm hanging everything I've got. I'm believing. I'm trusting you, Jesus. I'm not trusting anything that I'm doing. My baptism, my prayers. Oh, all of that will come out as a flow of my life, but none of these things are the ones that you're going to look upon. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus went to the cross for my sins and God raised Him from the dead for my justification. I am right with God because Jesus went to the cross and I believe that God raised Him from the dead. And confess. So I'm going to confess with my mouth. I'm going to confess with my mouth what? What am I going to confess? Literally, confess with my mouth. I'm going to open my mouth and words will come out in confession. What are the words? Be careful. It's not, I'm confessing my sins. You don't see that. Don't let someone tell you you need to confess your sins for I guarantee you, you'll forget some of them. Don't go there. It's not what he said here. He said, confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? I think the easiest way is for us to think, what does the word Lord Jesus mean? It's not like it's his surname. Lord is his title, like king. Lord means he is over all. He is sovereign. He is the one who I will submit to. I'm going to confess. What am I going to confess? I'm going to confess the Lord Jesus He went to the cross and I believe He took my sin on the cross and I confess He is my Lord. I'm going to follow Him. He will lead my life. I believe in Him. I'm not going to try and do this on my own. I'm trusting Jesus now. That word is so close to you, friend. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. And it is so vitally important that you go both. I'll tell you why. 
For some believe but never confess. In Jesus' day, that happened. John records it in John chapter 12. Here's what he says. John chapter 12, verse 42 and 43. You can give a mental assent to Jesus, but if you don't confess it with your mouth, you're coming short, friend. Here's what happens. John chapter 12, verse 42 and 43. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Did you see the words? Many of the chief rulers believed on him. They saw Jesus. He's the miracle maker. He's the one who changes people's lives. He's the one to follow. I believe he's even the Son of God. But I'm worried what people are going to say about me. So I'm not going to confess with my mouth. There's going to come a day when God will separate... Jesus' words, separate the sheep from the goats. And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. But in Romans chapter 10, he said, if you will believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. Now I know that I normally don't use the word saved because sometimes we don't fully understand it. I might put it in the Christianese category. It's the language that we as believers speak. But in this passage, Romans 10 verses 1 to 13, the word saved is used three times. So I need to use the word saved today. Let me define it for you. The wrath of God abides upon your unrighteousness. You need to be saved from God's anger. So how do you get saved? Hide behind Jesus. Let Jesus take God's wrath. God poured out His wrath on Jesus already on the cross. An infinite God poured out His infinite wrath upon His infinite Son on the cross in the space of three hours. And He took that wrath in Jesus' dying words. It is finished. There's no more need for me to do anything in this hamster wheel of the religion. Oh, I can trust Him. The Word is nigh thee. So believe and confess. And we'll come into the last portion for our passage today. This is verses 11 to 13. If you're writing these down, number three is this. God richly bestows righteousness on all those who trust in Him. God richly bestows righteousness upon all those who trust in Him. Let me read verse 11. For the Scripture says, Whosoever believeth on Him shall not be ashamed, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord, listen to these words, the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He is rich to all that call upon Him. There is no difference, Jew or Greek or red or yellow or black or white. It does not matter. He is rich to all. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He gave the most precious thing that ever could be offered. The blood of Jesus was offered on our behalf. 
Our righteousness is as filthy rags. We are so poor, we do not understand how poor we are. And He is so infinitely rich, we cannot fathom His riches. I think of Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He is slow to anger. And He's of great mercy. The Lord is good to all. And His tender mercies are over all His works. So when I compare my poorness to His riches, oh, He is abundantly rich. When I call upon Him, I call in weakness. And when He answers prayer, He shows His strength. And when I pray, I pray according to my weakness. And when He answers prayer, He does it according to His strength. My weakness is far outpaced by His riches. He is rich toward all who call upon Him. And grasp this, when one person calls upon Him and He bestows His riches, it does not diminish the storehouse of His rich mercy. Instead, His glory is more magnified as He bestows righteousness upon one after another, after another, after another. He is not exhausted in His richness as He gives righteousness to those who trust in Him. So then, whosoever calleth upon Him... Verse 11, who believeth on Him shall not be ashamed. You know why? Because you're righteous again. So when I call upon Him, He gives me His righteousness. And I no longer have to hide behind the tree or sew up my fig leaves. Now I'm made righteous. In verse 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm saved from His wrath as He gives me His righteousness. He takes my sin and places it on Jesus and gives me His own righteousness. He says, you are saved. Oh, this is a free gift and it's available to anybody, whosoever. Friend, that's me and that's you. He is rich to all. And He has promised that He will save you and He will give you His righteousness. I want to close with a parable that Jesus gave. This was in Luke chapter 18. Jesus said that there were two men that went into the temple to pray. Those two men were very different, came from very different walks of life. Jesus told the story of the Pharisee who came in, and on one side of the temple he prayed, and he lifted his eyes towards heaven, and he made a prayer something like this. He says, God... I give you tithes of everything I own. I fast twice a week. I'm not like other sinful men. I don't commit adultery and I'm not mixed up in idolatry. I don't extort and I'm definitely not a thief like that publican that's over there. And then at the same time, there was another guy that was in the temple. That was the publican over on the other side. And just within the context of their day, the publican was the hated, one of the most hated people in society. The tax collector who would steal from anybody. And there the publican stood in the corner. Jesus described him as he could not even raise his head toward heaven. And he beat himself upon his chest and he cried, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus gives a takeaway that day. 
And here's what Jesus said. This is Luke chapter 18 and verse 14. Jesus' words, I tell you, this man, the publican, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. I think it would have been completely understandable if Jesus had said, the publican went home justified just like the Pharisee. That would make logical sense. This Pharisee's been doing everything right. And the publican, because he prayed and he asked God to forgive him, God justified him just like, that's what it would be logical to say. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, this one went to the house justified. These words are important, friend, rather than the other. Publican goes home right with God. Pharisee goes home a sinful man. You know why? Because he brought his own righteousness before God. Your own righteousness will take away your ability to be saved. Can I beg of you this morning? Come, as he says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Could I ask you to stand with me this morning? Heads bowed and eyes closed. I pray that the gospel has come clear to your heart this morning. Father, I pray that in these next few moments, as we look at ourselves and we look at our hearts, am I standing on my own righteousness, trying to present my goodness to God Or instead, if I put my trust in Jesus alone, confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, for I need to be saved. I don't want to be ashamed. Friend, could I invite you this morning? Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never put your trust in Jesus. You say, Pastor, this is the first time I've really understood this. And I want to trust Jesus. I don't want to try to present my own goodness to God, for I now see my righteousnesses are nothing but a filthy rag. Could I invite you to just walk down the aisle, and I'll have somebody talk to you off, off on the side. You hear, Pastor, I'd love to put my trust in Jesus. I'd like to be saved. Would you come down the aisle? Just walk down the aisle. We're not going to make fun of you. We're not going to lift your name up. We're not going to have a celebration even. I'm just going to ask you to walk down the aisle. Brother Eric, would you meet this one? Come on down the aisle. Just walk down the aisle. I'd love for you to know how you can put your trust in Jesus. We've got folks on the pastoral staff who would love the opportunity to show you from Scripture how you can put your trust in Jesus. You just come on down the aisle. If you're a believer this morning, could I encourage you to spend a little bit of time in prayer right now? Thank God that Jesus took your place on the cross. Thank God that it's His righteousness that you're dependent on and not your own. And then be in prayer. God, would you do a work in the hearts of those who have not yet trusted in you? And so I might invite you one more time. Would you come? 
I'd like to put my trust in Christ. I'd like to talk to somebody about that. Would you just walk down the aisle? Come on forward. We'll be patient this morning. Friend, if you're in a place between two and you say, I don't know whether to walk down the aisle or not, I want you to know that there's several of you that we've been praying for for a long time. You walk down the aisle, there'll be rejoicing here. There'll be rejoicing in the presence of the angels. I don't want to rush this. Is there another? You say, I'd love to put my trust in Christ. Could somebody show me? Just walk down the aisle. Just come on down. Father, for by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And so, Father, I pray that we would not ever for even a moment think that we are righteous before you. But it is because of your righteousness alone that we're able to come to you. And so, Lord, I pray, continue to pray this morning for brothers and sisters who need to put their trust in you. I pray they would not walk away today and just slough it off. And if your Holy Spirit is doing a work in their heart, I pray that they would have a boldness to speak to someone today, not to put it off for another day. For Lord, we do not know our life is but a vapor. We do not know what tomorrow holds. Father, thank you for your grace upon us. May your name be glorified as a result of our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.